Throughout the country, on lonely roads where young women have died, ghost stories have been born from their tragedy. In the early 1940s, folklorists Richard Beardsley and Rosalie Hankey cataloged these stories for an issue of California Folklore Quarterly, and the title of their article would give the phenomena a name, The Vanishing Hitchhiker. This season, we will track down these tales, step back through history, and sift through the unique details of each story to determine whether a real local tragedy has been interwoven with the familiar urban legend. I'm your host, Jason, and this is Epitaph. Clarence Stevenson always felt best behind the wheel of that modified Ford. All he had to think about were the wheel, the brake, the clutch, and the accelerator. He could go where he wanted. When he stopped, when he stepped out of the car, he had to do what others told him to. But right now, he was in control. Right now, he could forget everything. His size, his heritage, his status, or what was behind him covered in a blood-stained canvas tarp. It was June 22nd, but only just barely. At three o'clock in the morning, though there were still lights on in most of the second floor windows, the town of Logan was quiet as he drove down Stratton Street. He knew exactly where he needed to go. He'd been past the lonely spot on 22 Mountain Road many times. His boss, Harry Robertson, had a hunting cabin out there. When he arrived, he pulled the car to the side of the road and stopped, but he left the engine running. He walked around the car and opened the rear passenger door and muscled the lifeless body of a tall woman to a standing position before allowing it to slump forward over his shoulder. He struggled to maneuver it to a ditch beside the road and then reversed the action, standing the body back up off his shoulder before shoving it with all of his strength. He watched it fall into the gully, disappearing into a bramble of blackberry thorns. Mamie Thurman hadn't been dead for three hours yet. Clarence got back behind the wheel and turned the car around, driving back into Logan. Within a few weeks of her body being discovered, strange occurrences began being reported on the mountain road, and to this day, there are still claims of sightings of the victim, a dark-haired woman in a blue polka-dotted dress. Coal truck drivers claim to have picked her up on the lonely mountain road now known as Corridor G of US 119 north of Logan, West Virginia, only to watch her disappear. Others will tell you that on clear, still nights, her tormented voice echoes through the trees and across the mountains near Holden, West Virginia. But unlike some tales where the identity of the hitchhiking ghost has been obscured by time and retellings, in this story, there is absolutely no doubt about who the woman was that they're encountering. On this episode, we're going to examine the double life and the brutal murder of Mamie Thurman. Located entirely within the Appalachian mountain range, the entire state of West Virginia is scenic mountaintop vistas, deep forests, and beautiful river valleys. The stuff of postcards and John Denver songs. But when many think of West Virginia, they don't think of its rugged beauty. They know it better for a secret once kept hidden beneath the surface. Coal. Veins of dark black bituminous coal that run deeply into West Virginia's beautiful mountains. Coal that men would go down into deep mines and chip away at and bring back to the surface. Coal that they would wear home on their clothes and on their faces. Coal that would bury itself deep inside their lungs and that they would cough up for the rest of their lives. In the 1780s, when explorers first came to what is now Logan, West Virginia, they named it the Islands of the Guyandot. In 1827, it became Lawnsville when Anthony Lawson built a trading post at the confluence of the Guyandot River and Main Island Creek. The first mayor chartered the village as Aracoma in 1853, named after the daughter of a Shawnee chief. 
and in 1907 it was renamed Logan after the chief of the Mingo tribe. Logan County, of which Logan is the county seat, was the home of Anderson Devil Ants Hatfield, patriarch of the Hatfield half of the Hatfield and McCoy feud in the 1880s. At its height, Logan had just over 5,000 residents. Its main business district consisted of four or five city blocks between two streets, Stratton and Main, and a courthouse sits in the town square. But despite its relatively small size, thousands of others lived in nearby coal mining camps and unregistered townships. 10,794 mine workers in 1931, according to the West Virginia Department of Mines, and Logan served as the hub for all of them. Hundreds of people walking through the town square and traffic bottlenecks were common. On the surface, Logan was a picture of 1920s Americana. If you remember Mayberry from The Andy Griffith Show, that probably wouldn't be far off. Families taking Sunday picnics after church, or a father and son carrying a tackle box and fishing rods to their favorite fishing hole. But just underneath that all-American veneer was a dark layer of political corruption and organized criminal activity. At the height of Prohibition, there was money to be made by those willing to supply moonshine and other alcoholic beverages. There's also documentation that shows that it was the local politicians who ran the protection racket for local businesses. And some suggest that one of the most notorious enforcers of that extortion was none other than Logan County Sheriff Dapper Don Chafin. Chafin was said to have controlled every judge and every jury in the county and was paid large sums of money by mine operators to keep unions out of the county, with one historian reporting that his net worth was in excess of $350,000, despite a $3,500 annual salary. Mamie Thurman was herself a reflection of Logan. On the surface, she was a devoted wife, a faithful churchgoer, and her husband Jack Thurman was a local police officer. But others knew that, as with most everything else in Logan, there was more to her than what you saw on the surface, that there were rich veins of dark secrets hidden beneath her beautiful exterior. Mamie frequently spent her evenings, when her husband was scheduled to be out on patrol, in a Logan speakeasy drinking, flirting, and engaging in numerous illicit affairs with prominent local businessmen, and that lifestyle would lead to her brutal murder. Many believe that a black man named Clarence Stevenson, convicted in her death, was innocent and that her true killer escaped. And that, some say, is the reason that she still walks the lonely roads of 22 Mountain. Mamie Morrison was born on September 12, 1900, in the rural town of Bradfordsville, Kentucky, about 78 miles southeast of Louisville. Her mother, Ollie Reynolds, died while giving birth to her brother, Theodore, when Mamie was just three years old. Her father, George A. Morrison Sr., was described as an abusive authoritarian and an alcoholic. He was also a carpenter and a good one. He made his living building houses and barns throughout the mountains of eastern Kentucky. According to family history, after hearing that an increased demand for coal had led to a boom in growth for towns in West Virginia, George announced that he was taking the kids and moving to Logan. The men digging the mines needed houses for their families, and George intended to be the man to build them. When he could afford to, George hired women to take care of Mamie and Teddy. When he couldn't afford it, he left Mamie, only five or six years old herself at the time, to take care of her brother on her own. She was instructed to feed him when he woke, to change his diapers when needed, and to stay in bed with him and keep him as warm and quiet as possible. But as the town began to grow, demand for houses did too, and George was becoming a wealthy man. Being an attractive single man with a healthy bank account, George became the target of single women in town. Some were willing to help with the children. Some even stayed for weeks at a time. Census records suggest that when she was 10 years old, Mamie and her younger brother Teddy had gone to live briefly with their maternal grandparents on their farm near Milltown, Kentucky 
but her brother, George Jr., wrote that she grew up mostly in and around Logan. In Logan, Mamie was the envy of other girls. With her father's business doing well and his lack of time at home, she had better clothes, more freedom, and always had money to spend. Mamie matured early. By sixth grade, she looked more like a woman than a girl. She'd grown into a willowy brunette with a bright smile. Like many young people discovering the differences between boys and girls, Mamie was curious. And all with her father working long hours and without so much as a memory of her mother to serve as a guide for how to behave. One day, a boy walking her home asked if he could come in to use the restroom. While he did, Mamie laid on the couch. When he came back into the room, he sat down beside her and she smiled. Whether she'd meant for it to be or not, no one can say, but he took that as an invitation to get on top of her. When he left, she noticed a jagged, wet stain on the front of her dress, and it took her a week to gather the courage to ask an older girl to explain about boys and their things and the stains they can cause. For Mamie, knowing only made her more curious, more eager to explore. And whether you choose to label her as promiscuous or simply free-spirited, the freedom with which she distributed her affection was more dangerous than she realized. Though there isn't specific mention of it in any of the books about her life, it looks like Mamie spent time living in both Logan and closer to her familial roots in Kentucky. In 1920, for example, census records say that Mamie was living at the Hardesty Motel on Main Street in Lebanon, Kentucky, where she was listed as working as a servant. She was living in Louisville just a few years later when she met and married Jack Thurman, and she moved back to Logan with him in 1924. It was around this same time that George Morrison remarried to a young woman named Viola Lucas, who was closer to Mamie's age than she was to his. It was the second marriage for both, and they had a second family together. Their daughter, Helen, was born when Mamie was 21 years old. Another daughter, Sarah, followed just a few years later, and George Alfred Morrison Jr. was born in 1925. But even though his young bride kept his life interesting, George Sr. had to work even harder to make enough money to keep the two women in his life both of whom loved to play at night, satisfied. When George opened a savings account in her name, Ola, as Viola preferred to be called, drained it nearly overnight. Ola and Mamie were good friends and kindred spirits, and they were known to frequent the clubs on Stratton Street together. Stressed by women and money, George did what a lot of men do. He drank. One author claims that George Morrison died during a gun battle with police over illegal alcohol in 1928, which, though exciting, isn't true. Rather, he toppled off of a deck into a ravine behind the Morrison home off of Cole Street one night after he'd returned home in an alcoholic stupor. He broke several bones in the fall and laid there in the ravine until he was found the next day. Exposure to weather led to pneumonia, which his death certificate states was the cause of death. By the time George died, his riches were gone, and his death was ruinous for Ola, financially if not emotionally. She left Logan for Kentucky, and whether she preferred the nightlife to parenthood as some have suggested, or if she simply couldn't support them on her own during the Great Depression, in 1931, Ola left their three children, Helen, Sarah, and George Jr., at an orphanage in Louisville, Kentucky, and walked away. Mamie and her husband Jack Thurman remained in Logan. Jack had worked for a few different employers after first arriving in Logan County before finally landing a job as a patrolman with the city of Logan. His appointment to the position was thanks, in large part, to his friend and landlord, Harry Robertson. Like Logan itself, the Robertsons, Harry and his wife Louise, weren't what outward appearances may have suggested. Harry Robertson worked for the National Bank of Logan, served as treasurer for the Logan Public Library, and was the chairman of the prestigious and politically powerful City of Logan Board of Commissioners. 
He had the sort of appearance that one might consider stereotypical of a bookkeeper in the 1930s. Slightly smaller than average in stature, close-set eyes with round-rimmed glasses that sat low on his nose, and a receding hairline that he kept slicked down with hair tonic. Photos of Harry suggest he was fond of pinstriped slacks, heavily starched shirts, and small bow ties. His wife Louise was the treasurer for the Logan Women's Club, and both were active in their church. Louise had been born into wealth in a place where wealth was hard to come by. Her world was one of pretty dresses, private schools, and church socials. Her father worked for the mines, but rather than being one of the men covered in coal dust and coughing up black spit at the end of a shift, he was the man responsible for meeting boats in New York Harbor and recruiting immigrants fresh from Europe to bring back to Logan. So Louise grew up a debutante. When she was 16, she confessed to her mother that she was having bad thoughts about the new boy at school, Harry Robertson. Her mother explained that though lust and desire were natural feelings, they were also sinful. And if Louise was to remain good, proper, and moral, she needed to keep those feelings within the confines of marital vows. So a few years later, when they were both old enough, she married Harry Robertson. The Robertsons lived in an impressive three-story brick home on Stratton Street, built by George A. Morrison, Mamie's father. He also built a two-car garage with a small overhead apartment in their backyard that, after arriving in Logan, Jack and Mamie Thurman would rent from Harry and Louise Robertson. But despite their wealth and status as members of Logan's societal elite, trouble was brewing. Harry had begun staying later downtown, and he told Louise that the bank was demanding more and more of his time. One night, he came home more than a little drunk and reeking with a woman's scent. At first, Louise said nothing. Her mother had taught her how different men could be, how they too found it hard to be good, how they struggled with bad thoughts and lust. But eventually, she couldn't stand his infidelities anymore. She ripped the covers off of him and shouted at him to go wash himself, and then she started sleeping alone. The Robertsons had other boarders in their home too. Oscar Townsend, one of Harry's fellow bank employees, rented one of their second floor bedrooms. And a black handyman named Clarence Stevenson lived in a small cleared area in their attic. His room consisted of a single bed, a chair, and a low wattage light that screwed into a socket dangling from a roof beam. Clarence was a man of small stature such that, at well under five feet tall, he may have had dwarfism. If that weren't enough to make his appearance distinctive, he also had been in an accident with a grocery delivery wagon that made a large bulging gash across his brow and caused him to have frequent nosebleeds throughout the rest of his life. He had worked as a miner in a number of mines in the area, but had a couple of accidents that resulted in him losing fingers. He stayed with the Robertsons in exchange for performing duties like gardening, running errands, and acting as Harry's chauffeur. He was expected to wash the dishes every evening, but was asked to leave the house when the Robertsons entertained. He was also in charge of tending Harry's hunting dogs. Harry Robertson's vote as the chair of the Board of Commissioners not only got Jack his job with the Logan Police Department, but it seems he may have also helped Mamie Thurman get her job as a teller at the Guyane Valley Bank. As she was new to the banking world, he was responsible for helping train her, which meant that they spent extended periods of time in close proximity. Their illicit relationship may have started with an innocent smile. She may have brushed up against him as they passed in the lobby. A suggestive note to express attraction, conversations on the job could have led to dates away from the bank. The details of how their relationship began are left to speculation, but what is known is that Harry and Mamie began an adulterous relationship and, with Mamie living over the Robertson garage, she and Harry were never far from each other. It is thought that their affair may have even been the reason why Robertson voted to give Jack Thurman the job as a patrolman. Ensuring that Jack would be out working nights, Robertson would have effectively freed Mamie to come and go as she pleased. 
Harry kept a hunting cabin on Trace Mountain, now more commonly known as 22 Mountain, where he would often go fox hunting. Usually, that would include actual fox hunting, but he'd also frequently carve out time before or after the hunt for Mamie to meet him at the cabin. They had other places they'd meet, too. There was a lodging house on High Street, a place near Crooked Creek, and Robertson was a member of the Logan's Businessman's Club, also known as La Societe des Amour. The Amour Club was an exclusive speakeasy on the second floor of the G.C. Murphy Company building. The club was not only known for its drinking and gambling, but also as a sex club. Members would bring girlfriends there with them, and there is also mention of it being known for wife swapping. Due to the particularly scandalous nature of the activities going on inside, it was a key club, meaning that to gain access, patrons needed either a key or the password. Harry Robertson had a key, and Mamie Thurman quickly earned one of her own. Though Mamie and Harry believed they were being discreet, their activities were arousing suspicion. Louise Robertson was already aware that her husband was unfaithful. Though she and Mamie had been close friends, their relationship ended abruptly in January of 1932 when, according to Louise, she had reason to believe that Mamie and Harry were intimate. One Saturday night in January, an off-handed remark clued Louise in as to what was going on, and that was the last Mamie would be allowed inside the Robertson home. However, despite her knowledge of the affair, she never confronted Mamie about it. Clarence Stevenson was frequently tasked with picking Mamie up and delivering her to their meeting spots. However, in March of 1932, just a few months before her death, Mamie had used a taxi to get to the Holden 21 Mine store not far from where Harry's cabin was located. The trip was charged back to Jack Thurman. Jack arrived at the city taxi office asking to look at the books. He saw the record of the trip and asked who made it. Mamie came in shortly thereafter and told the owner that she wished that he hadn't said anything to Mr. Thurman about the trip. But Harry wasn't the only man Mamie was involved with. She also kept a secret apartment on Main Street, rented from a woman named Fanny Jones, less than a hundred yards from where the Amore Club was located. Fanny Jones, along with running several apartment buildings in Logan, was also the proprietor of its most popular bordello. Mamie used the apartment as a rendezvous room where, mimicking the style of the Amore Club, she gave out entrance keys to her special friends, or clients. Before her disappearance, Mamie was seen taking clean sheets to Fanny, suggesting that perhaps she had a date planned that night and Mamie kept a scorecard. About a year before her murder, Mamie gave Harry a list of 16 other men in Logan that she had been sleeping with, and she told him that she was still seeing four of them. Though they were both married to other people, after her confession, Harry was said to be increasingly jealous of others to whom she may show affection. He would frequently send Clarence Stevenson to follow her, to watch her, and to report back to him. And for her part, Mamie was jealous of Louise Robertson, she believed that the quickest way to improve her social standing was the collapse of the Robertson marriage. Then she could divorce Jack and move from the garage to the main house. Clarence would later say that Mamie planned to somehow remove Louise from the picture altogether, that she would rehearse with him different scenarios of how she could drive a wedge between Harry and Louise, ways that she could destroy Louise's reputation in the community. Clarence said that he tried to discourage her from saying such things. But, caught in a situation that he felt was spiraling out of control, he had a crisis of conscience. He confessed to Harry that he too had been with Mamie, more than once. While still keeping Harry and Mamie's affair a secret, he told Louise about Mamie's plan to ruin her, and the situation that had been simmering for months boiled over. On the night of Tuesday, June 21st, 1932, Jack and Mamie Thurman ate dinner together, and after, he left for his 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. overnight shift working with his partner, Officer Hibbard Hatfield. 
He called Mamie from Charlie Small's restaurant a little after midnight, but there was no answer. As he walked from the restaurant back to the house, the wind was picking up. A storm was brewing, and when he got home, the bed hadn't been occupied. Mamie wasn't there. He called a couple of her friends, Mrs. Dallas Morrison and Mrs. Booker, as Mamie had told him frequently that she would go to their houses to visit. Neither had seen or heard from her. He called Logan General Hospital, but she wasn't there either. Mamie Thurman was found by Garland Davis, who, quite literally, stumbled upon her corpse while picking blackberries about 1 p.m. on Wednesday, June 22nd. Shaken by what he'd found, Garland ran home to Holden for help. State troopers, sheriff's deputies, and policemen from Logan, including Jack Thurman's partner, Hibbard Hatfield, rushed to the scene. Mamie was quickly identified. Her body was drug over to a nearby tree and propped up so that they could examine it and the surrounding area for clues. Upright, her head leaned forward. A terrible gash across her throat was prominent. Her hair was matted, tangled with mud and grass and leaves. Her skin was ashen gray. Her purse, containing $9 and change, was found nearby. She was still wearing her jewelry. A diamond engagement ring and a wedding band valued at more than $200, which, during the Great Depression, was a small fortune. Robbery was quickly ruled out as a motive. Officers also found her turban-style hat, one of her shoes, and a case knife believed to have been the weapon responsible for the wound on her neck. The officers took photos of the scene and then placed her body on a gurney, covered her with a white sheet, and transported her to the Harris Funeral Home. Mamie Morrison Thurman was determined to have died late on the night of June 21, 1932, the victim of a brutal murder. She was 32 years old. She was survived by her husband, Jack Thurman, a brother, Theodore, two half-sisters, Helen and Sarah, and her half-brother, George Morrison, Jr. Her death certificate states that her cause of death is unknown. Undertaker Bruce Harris of the Harris Funeral Home noted numerous injuries that could have led to her death. One bullet had entered about her ear and the other directly above the ear. Both bullets, he said, passed completely through her head, leaving jagged holes on the right side where they exited. Her throat had been slashed cleanly, completely severing both of her jugular veins and her carotid arteries, and her neck was broken. Pressed on whether he thought her neck was slashed before or after she was shot, Harris said that most of the evidence indicated that the blood seemed to come from her throat rather than the bullet wounds. Therefore, he thought that the death was likely caused either by her slashed throat or her broken neck. Mamie's funeral was held on Friday, June 24th, and likely remains one of the most bizarre in the history of Logan County, if not the entire United States. 550 women and just 30 men were seated in Nybert Methodist Memorial Church. Pastor B.C. Gamble of Nybert and Reverend Robert F. Caverly of First Baptist Church officiated. The entirety of the eulogy was Reverend Gamble reading the text of John, chapter 3, verses 3 through 7. That text reads, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the dust. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Gamble added, This is the text. Develop your own sermon on that basis. Reverend Caverly then read her obituary, and the service was concluded. Mamie was buried, at least initially, at Logan Memorial Park in McConnell, West Virginia. 
It's believed that she may have later been disinterred and her body removed to an unknown location. But to this day, it's thought that justice was never served, as a number of reasonable theories exist that point to a cover-up in a city that was known for its corruption and dark secrets. Mamie Thurman's body was discovered at about 1 p.m. Shortly after, police arrived at the Robertson home and performed a search. It's unclear specifically what led them to believe that Harry Robertson should be questioned. It was reported that an anonymous caller contacted the police on the night of the killing to report seeing a black car drenched in blood, though no other description was given. Inside the house, police found that Clarence's shirt, on a chair in his attic room, had its sleeves rolled up to the elbows, and one of the sleeves was stained in blood. State police also found several pistols at the Robertson home, including one that matched the 38 caliber used to shoot Mamie. They also made a thorough investigation of Harry's black Ford sedan in the garage and found blood on the window, the fender, the rear seat, and under the rubber floor mats. A large piece of tarp was also stained with blood, and all of these items were taken and categorized. Police officer Bill Bruce later testified that police weren't able to gain access to the basement until the next day. By the time that they had arrived, he said that the basement was all wet with soap suds and water was standing that had not been drained out. It certainly seemed as though Harry Robertson was attempting to remove evidence. Less than eight hours after Mamie Thurman's body was found, Harry Robertson and his handyman Clarence Stevenson were arrested. On Thursday, Louise and the Robertson's other boarder, Oscar Townsend, were taken to the prosecuting attorney's office and questioned. Both were eventually released to go home, with a warning to remain there and wait to be called for further questioning. On Friday, the day of Mamie's funeral, police returned to the Robertson home to search the basement. There, they found several blood-stained rags, several spots on the floor that may have been blood, a straight razor with specks of dried blood, and a hole in the wall which they speculated could have been caused by a bullet. If Harry Robertson, Clarence Stevenson, or anyone else in the Robertson home had been attempting to get rid of evidence, they'd done a poor job of it. Keep in mind, though, that there was another explanation for all of those things being there. Because Louise Robertson wouldn't allow him to use the bathrooms elsewhere in the house, the basement is where Clarence Stevenson was made to bathe. The straight razor was likely what he'd used to shave, and if he'd ever nicked himself while doing so, that could explain the spots of blood that police would later claim was found on the blade. Also, he had frequent nosebleeds, which could account for the bloody rags and the spots on the floor. West Virginia refused to admit testing that determined the blood type, so the testing at the time could only confirm whether the blood belonged to a human or to an animal. Meanwhile, Mamie's husband, Jack Thurmond, was placed on furlough by the Logan Police Department, who, out of apparent concern for him during his mourning over Mamie's death, also chose to confiscate his 38 caliber service revolver. But rather than stay in town during the investigation and preliminary hearings, Jack Thurmond went back to Louisville. There's some question as to whether it was to escape the constant headlines and the pitying stares in Logan, or instead, to lay low and avoid questioning during the police investigation. Throughout their questioning, however, Harry and Clarence maintained the same story. Harry had been having an affair with Mamie Thurman, yes. Clarence detailed the various rendezvous spots where he'd driven Mamie to meet Harry. But they also both said that Harry had last seen Mamie on the previous Saturday. They were planning to meet on the Tuesday that she disappeared, Harry said, but they had canceled because Clarence was too sick to drive her. They both claimed that they had last seen Mamie leaving the Thurman's garage apartment at around 8 p.m. and walking toward downtown. 
When asked whether or not he thought he was the only man that Mamie was keeping dates with, Harry hesitated. And then he admitted that she was seeing at least four other men, all of them businessmen in Logan. Harry told police about the Amour Club, frequented not only by several of those involved in the Mamie Thurman case, but also by well-known members of the Logan community and their lady friends. It was a secret place for drinking, wife-swapping, gambling, and other activities, he told police. Clarence said that Harry had often ordered him to watch Mamie to see if she entered or left the club when Harry wasn't with her. He also said that he had a relationship with Mamie and that he'd told Harry about it. Harry denied any knowledge of that. Oscar Townsend told investigators that there had been recent ill feelings and hostility between Mamie Thurman and Louise Robertson. Louise, he said, had heard rumors of her husband meeting with Mamie. The preliminary hearing was held on Saturday, June 25th, and it immediately became clear that there were going to be differences between how Harry Robertson and Clarence Stevenson were to be treated. Clarence was brought in under the guard of armed state troopers, his wrists handcuffed together. Harry walked in unbound. Newspapers had already run sensational headlines about the affair and the existence of the Amour Club, but despite that, when Louise arrived, she walked in and kissed her husband on the cheek, whispering in his ear with an arm around his shoulder for several minutes before the proceedings began. Testimony began with undertaker Bruce Harris describing Mamie's various injuries. The visitors packed into the courtroom murmured as they listened to what had happened to Mamie in her final moments. Several became ill and had to leave the room. Mamie's death certificate was presented. It was said that an autopsy had been completed by Dr. W.S. Rowan, Dr. L.W. Hatfield, and Dr. J.E. Robertson. Dr. Robertson was Harry Robertson's brother. He was seated in the courtroom next to Louise, both of them behind Harry at the defendant's table. We'll come back to it later in this episode, but it should be pointed out here that there is reason to consider Dr. Robertson as a suspect, or, at the very least, an accomplice in the murder of Mamie Thurman. But even so, he was never detained, never interrogated by law enforcement, and was allowed to participate in the autopsy. Harry and Clarence were called as witnesses against each other, but, as it was when they were questioned by police, their stories remained consistent. However, during his testimony, Harry effectively put the community on notice, telling the court that Mamie had given him a list of 16 other men that she had been intimate with, and that she had told him that she was still actively involved with a number of them. One of these men is dead, he said. The others all live in the city of Logan, with the exception of three. All are married, except one. Fifteen of the most powerful and influential men in the community all now had something to lose. Clarence had been seen throwing an old pair of overalls in the river behind the Robertsons' home, and during his testimony, he admitted it. He also admitted to knowing a witness, Ed Dalton, who had identified Clarence as having been seen returning from Trace Mountain before sunrise on June 22nd. He told the court of his own sexual relationship with Mamie, which caused many onlookers to mumble amongst themselves. After all, a relationship between a black man and a white woman in those days was a scandal in its own right. He testified that they had last seen Mamie leaving her apartment, walking out the back way toward Main Street in Logan's business district. He denied having left the house on the night of the murder, except to go to Fanny Jones's place later in search of Mamie. He also testified that he had been beaten during his questioning and told that if he didn't say that Harry Robertson had killed Mamie Thurman, the police were going to kill him. 
He offered to show the court the bruises and sores from where Deputy Bob Jeffrey had punched him repeatedly in the head. He even accused the prosecutor, Emmett F. Skaggs, of having threatened him and pulled his hair. Skaggs, with a half-grin, simply nodded affirmatively, and the courtroom crowd applauded and cheered. At one point during his testimony, Clarence pointed to the back of the courtroom and shrieked as if he'd seen a ghost. Amused, the prosecutor asked him, What did you see, Mrs. Thurman? Clarence never answered. Instead, he tried to regain his self-control, shaking nervously, mumbling incoherently at times, and hunching down in his chair. After his testimony, to the boos and hisses of the courtroom crowd, Clarence was escorted from the courtroom by armed patrolmen, taken to the Logan County Jail, and then moved to the McDowell County Jail cell to keep him away from the reach of an angry public. Harry Robertson, however, was released on a $10,000 bond. With Clarence in jail, he had to drive himself home. When court reconvened on July 7th, nearly a thousand people packed the courtroom. Some brought their own folding chairs so they'd be guaranteed a seat. A woman had come forward claiming to have seen Clarence driving a black sedan, likely the Ford, and, that she, and saying that she had heard two gunshots, and then, a while later, Clarence passed her again. Two state troopers and the assistant prosecutor had put Clarence in the back of a police car and took him to police headquarters where they showed him Harry Robertson's Ford and showed him the blood evidence. For the first time, Clarence cried and was unable to speak distinctly. When they entered the courtroom, Harry was said to have been composed, self-assured, and serene. Clarence, on the other hand, seemed worried and exhausted. He was sweating profusely and appeared irritated by the public attention. He squirmed in his chair, cleared his throat repeatedly, and grimaced. Some speculated that it was evidence of his own guilt. Others, though, thought that it was that he already knew that he was about to become a legal sacrifice. Little new evidence was presented at that hearing, and instead, the judge granted a continuance until July 28th, at which time the prosecution would present their findings on the blood found in Harry Robertson's car and in the basement of his home. Two days before that hearing, Prosecutor Emmett F. Skaggs gave a statement to the press, addressing the concern that there will be no vigorous prosecution in the Thurman murder case, for the reason of the names of various prominent people might be involved. He stated that they would not drag the name of any person into this case for the purpose of getting even with them, or to satisfy curiosity seekers, some of whom are more interested in scandal than to know who really murdered Mrs. Mamie Thurman. Unless the bringing in of such names will strengthen the state's case and shed more light thereon, they will not be used. While awaiting the hearing, Clarence remained in jail while Harry Robertson returned to some semblance of normal life. Clarence attempted to write a letter to his sister from jail, asking her to let the Robertsons know that he wouldn't lie on them and to tell them not to worry. His letter was intercepted by police and its contents were released to the press. When the state's chemist finally revealed his findings, he stated that the blood discovered on top of the car, on the razor, on the floorboards, and on the fender were positively human in nature. It would be decades still before the introduction of DNA testing, but again, even though blood type testing was available and could have linked the evidence to either the victim or the accused, or could have been used to exonerate them, it was considered inadmissible in West Virginia at the time. The state rested its case against Harry Robertson and Clarence Stevenson at 3.45 p.m. on July 28, 1932. Magistrate Hatfield stated, This is a terrible crime that has been committed in our county. I realize all of the evidence is purely circumstantial, but it is so very damaging against the two defendants that I feel that the grand jury should investigate thoroughly. For that reason, this court rules that the defendants, Mr. Robertson and Stevenson, 
be held to answer any indictments that may be returned by the grand jury. Harry Robertson once again returned home on bond, and Clarence Stevenson returned to his jail cell. As the seating of the grand jury neared, prosecutors showed the first signs that they may not have felt that their case against Harry and Clarence was enough to earn a conviction. Or, perhaps, they weren't certain that they were putting the right men in the defendant's chairs. Prosecutor John Chafin went before the court in September and said, We have run down every clue that has been called to our attention. Mr. Skaggs and I have interrogated witnesses until 1 and 2 o'clock many a morning. We have never stopped devoting our time and energy to this case, and something has to be done. In my honest opinion, people in this town and county know a lot that might throw light on it, but they are not divulging it because they do not want their names in court. This brutish crime has no equal in Logan County, and if the county court will agree to offer a $1,000 reward, it will be the best $1,000 ever spent in Logan County. The court agreed and posted the reward for information that would lead to the conviction of those responsible for Mamie Thurman's murder. On September 9th, the Logan Banner ran a headline about the reward, advising its readers to expect startling confessions. But while many people contacted the court and prosecutors, seeking to share what they knew, no new information was forthcoming. Chafin had to release a statement clarifying that the state would not pay for what it already knew. Selection of the grand jury began on September 12th. At 9 a.m., Judge Naaman Jackson opened the fall term of the Logan County Circuit Court, and in spite of all the controversy and speculation on the case, the attendance at court that morning was the smallest ever recorded. Nineteen men were selected for the jury panel, and Judge Jackson's instructions were simple. You have been called together for the purpose of making indictments. Since the last term of court, there have been more murders than usual, to my recollection. The only protection against murder is through the courts. The only way to make people understand the value of human life is to prosecute the criminals according to the law. I want to especially call your attention to the murder of Mrs. Thurman, one of the most gruesome in the county and state. This is an outstanding case. If there is enough evidence to indict the parties responsible, the court expects you to do it. Beginning that morning and concluding four days later at 6 p.m. on September 15th, the grand jury heard and voted on nearly 70 cases. Fifteen of the men would be asked to hear and vote on each case, and only 12 of them needed to concur to make an indictment. When they returned their findings to Judge Jackson, they offered up 58 felony convictions and eight indictments for misdemeanors. Clarence Stevenson was indicted for the murder of Mamie Thurman. Harry Robertson was not. Clarence's trial date was set for October 6th. On October 10th, he entered a not guilty plea, and the selection of the jury began. Forty additional potential jurors were summoned to the circuit court at the start of the trial. In Logan County, particularly during the Great Depression, jury duty was normally left for those who needed money. This time was different, and it wasn't random. Hannibal Johns was ordered to jury duty for the trial, but rather than being called by the court, the call came from his church pastor. When he arrived, he saw his longtime friend, Tom Lang. In fact, the room was full of friends, many of them expressing gratitude for the chance to serve. Don't you worry, Hanny, Lang told him. It won't take us long to get that killer out of the way. It's for the cause. By noon, jury selection was complete and Judge Jackson struck his gavel, adjourning court until 9 a.m. the next day when the trial would begin. The next morning, more than a thousand people squeezed into the courtroom to see the proceedings firsthand. Most in attendance tried to remain quiet and mannerly, but with that many people, the room still had a buzz. And, for as many as were packed into the courtroom itself, 
there were still more outside hoping for a chance to see the trial. Others saw it as an opportunity to make a little extra money and sold concessions, cold water, fruit, soda, and homemade snacks. The first witness was Mr. R.B. Harris, who testified that he had worked for the funeral home and spoke of the condition of the body when it was found on Trace Mountain. He attested to what she had been wearing at the time she was found. He noted that there wasn't much blood in the body or the head, at least not as much as he would have expected. He suggested that it could have been due to the storm the night Mamie was murdered and that it could have been that the blood was simply washed away. He offered a guess that she'd been dead for 17 or 18 hours by the time he examined her at 3 p.m., which would mean that she would have been killed between 9 and 10 p.m. the previous night. Dr. W.S. Rowan was the next to take the stand, and he testified to the nature of her wounds. He stated that he was quite certain that it was a 38 caliber gun used, and that both shots would have proven fatal individually. He pointed to his own head to demonstrate where the bullets entered. He also revised previous testimony, suggesting that the bullets could have killed her before her throat was cut. Her throat was cut, he said, extending down into the trachea and right jugular, and was cut. The wound seemed to extend a little deeper into the right side, that is, into the tissues. He noted that her carotids were also cut, and that the smooth cut indicated that the perpetrator had an especially steady hand and the action was deliberate and calculated. Jack Thurman was called to the stand next. He told the court that he was 48, making him 16 years older than his wife Mamie, and that he had lived with her in Logan for the past eight years. He said that he had last seen Mamie sometime around 5.30 when he left for his nightly shift. At around 11 p.m., he'd seen Clarence sitting casually on the steps of Guyane Valley Bank in the center of town. Jack was on duty and on foot. He said that he and Clarence had spoken for several minutes in front of the bank, but nothing seemed out of the ordinary. A few hours later, he had tried to call Mamie to check in on her when he stopped at Charlie Small's restaurant for food and coffee, but there was no answer. So he walked back to check their apartment, and the bed hadn't been slept in. Her friends hadn't heard from her, and she wasn't at Logan General Hospital. The next day before her body was discovered, he'd called the Robertsons to see if they'd seen her. Acting concerned, Clarence drove him around town to search for her, checking the places she'd been known to frequent. When cross-examined, he said that he and Mamie hadn't argued and seldom fought. We were always on good terms, he said. Jack spoke so softly that he was frequently asked to speak louder. After his testimony, he sat in the audience and watched each day of the proceedings, sometimes wiping tears away during the especially sensitive testimony. Other witnesses were called on the first day to help reconstruct Mamie's last night. Clyde White testified that he had seen her enter Fanny Jones's home around 8.10 p.m. Jack White, a 16-year-old boy, saw her shortly before dark. Nadine Mabney, an employee of the Aracoma Drug Company, sold her a pack of cigarettes around 8.30 p.m., likely the pack of cigarettes that were found in her purse. W.L. Brand saw her between 8.30 and 9 o'clock. On the second day of the trial, crowds were even larger. Deputies turned people away at the doors, and city and county law enforcement were called in to keep the courtroom orderly. The day opened with Garland Davis testifying about finding the body. Garland was deaf and mute, and neither court documents nor newspaper records indicate how he communicated his testimony. It's possible that he spoke in gestures and that family members interpreted for him. Then, Harry Robertson was called to the stand. If those in attendance were hoping to hear sordid, scandalous details, Harry didn't disappoint. He almost brought the room to its feet on more than one occasion, as he revealed detail after detail of his two-year relationship with Mamie Thurman. He testified about working with her at Guyane Valley Bank. He answered questions about his hunting cabin on Trace Mountain, where he camped with his hunting dogs and also frequently went fox hunting with Mamie. 
He said that he'd last seen Mamie around 8 p.m. the night of her death. He testified that he left home too, that he'd taken his children to a swimming pool, and about an hour or so later, he went to the Smokehouse restaurant with his son to listen to the prize fight on the radio, likely a match between Jack Sharkey and Max Smelling at Madison Square Garden. My Ford sedan was gone when I returned, he added. It was mentioned that Mamie's body was found just a mile from Harry's hunting cabin, and Harry was shown photographs of the bloodstains on his car. Harry explained that he and Mamie had gone fox hunting the previous Saturday, except that time they'd actually gone hunting. It wasn't just a euphemism. They'd gone to Crooked Creek, and on the way back, two of the dogs had fought in the back seat. One dog was bleeding badly, he said, attempting to explain away the blood in the car. The taxi bills that had been charged back to Jack Thurman for Mamie's trips to the hunting cabin were also entered into evidence, but no explanation for them was given to the jury. He testified that he and Mamie hadn't had sex at Crooked Creek that day, but had later at a room that she had rented from Fanny Jones. And then, as usual, Clarence took her home. She had to be in by 11 p.m., he said. He also told of the other intimate encounters they had had at various places throughout the county and admitted that they'd planned going hunting again on Tuesday, the day that she had been killed, but that Clarence had told him that he was feeling ill, so they had canceled their plans earlier that afternoon. His wife Louise was suspicious, he said, but she had known nothing about his frequent meetings with Mamie. After lunch, Fanny Jones took the witness stand. She testified that Mamie had come to her house around 8 p.m. to drop off a set of bed linens as payment for cleaning her apartment earlier in the day. She said that Mamie was wearing a snug yellow linen dress and a pearl necklace and bracelet. When Mamie was found, however, she was wearing a blue dress with small white polka dots and red trim. Mamie stayed for about 10 minutes and they talked about the storm that was coming. E.F. Murphy, a local businessman, took the stand next. He said that he saw Clarence and Mamie together earlier in the evening on the night that she had disappeared, sometime around 6 p.m. Others were also called to the stand. Sherman Ferguson, Ernest Brown, Holbert Gilliam, Don Huff, Nick Polinori, and John Buckland, all testifying that they had seen either Clarence or the Ford sedan in town in the early morning hours of Tuesday. At 2 p.m., the state rested its case. The defense opened after a 30-minute recess by calling Jack Thurman back to the witness stand. He was asked if he remembered speaking to Harry's brother, Dr. J.E. Robertson, some state troopers, and the city manager, W.E. Baumgartner, at the Harris funeral home. He didn't. He was asked if he remembered having told them that he regretted having left home without saying anything to Mamie or leaving her money to go to the movie theater. He didn't. He was asked if he remembered during that discussion speculating that a person or persons that he'd arrested in the past may have committed the crime. He didn't. The owner of City Taxi, J.E. Reed, was called to testify about the receipts that had previously been entered into evidence. He told the court about Mamie's trip to the hunting cabin in March, that it had been discovered by Jack after having been charged back to him, and he also testified about Mamie coming in after having been confronted by Jack and saying that she was disappointed that he had told Jack about her trip. John McDonald, a barber, was called to the stand next. He testified that he frequently went on fox hunts with Harry Robertson and Clarence, that he had witnessed Clarence's hands bleeding after hunts due, in part, to the injuries that he had sustained while working in the mines. He also talked about Clarence's frequent nosebleeds. He said that Clarence was responsible for hauling Robertson's hunting dogs in the Ford sedan, and that, as the dogs would frequently fight, to protect the car interior, an old canvas tarp was placed over the rear seats and floorboards. Harry Robertson was recalled to the stand next, and he again testified about his relationship with Mamie. But when the defense tried to question him about the list of names he'd previously said that Mamie had given him, 
Attempting to establish a list of other suspects, the judge ordered the question be stricken from the record and that the jury disregard it. He testified that he'd given Clarence money to purchase medicine when he told him he was sick. Oscar Townsend was called to the stand next, testifying to where Clarence and Harry were on the day preceding the discovery of Mamie's body. Jim Shelton testified that he had known Clarence for nearly a decade, had gone fox hunting with him on occasion, and hadn't known him to ever be in any sort of trouble. Millard Clay also testified about Clarence's frequent nosebleeds, and the defense noted that Clay had appeared on the state's list of witnesses, but he wasn't called. The defense asked Clay if he was on their list because the prosecution had told him to say that he had seen Clarence beheading dogs. The judge reprimanded the attorney and ordered the bailiff to remove him if he continued that line of questioning, and not long after, court was adjourned for the day. On Thursday morning, the courtroom was again packed full. Louise Robertson was called to the witness stand and it seemed everyone in town wanted to hear her answers to the defense's questions. She told the court about Clarence and his injuries while working at the mine, first losing a finger on his right hand and then another on his left. She talked about his living arrangements at their home, how he slept in their attic and, she supposed, used the toilet in the basement because he didn't use the toilets in her home. He was expected to use either the damp basement or to walk down to the courthouse and use their restroom facilities. They noticed when he came and went, though, she said, because the door that he used was heavy and it dragged and it made noise when it shut. She told the court that she and Mamie had been good friends once, that Mamie had frequently been in her house and she in the Thurman's apartment, that they had played golf together frequently at the country club, and that their relationship ended in January because she wouldn't be around any woman who was intimate with her husband. She provided an alibi for herself and for her husband, and would help establish one for Clarence's whereabouts on the night of Mamie's death. I was at home that night and saw Mrs. Thurman that evening as she went out. It was around 8 p.m. when she went down the back steps. Harry got up and went to work that morning, came home for lunch, and was in from work as usual when he took the children to the swimming pool at Stallings. They came back between 6.30 and 7 o'clock. I had supper ready, and we all ate together. Clarence had been in and out and around the place as usual. He was sick, so after supper, Harry, my husband, washed the dishes, which was Clarence's duty. Clarence was around for a while. Harry had worked on their car earlier, and according to Louise, had decided to drive the car around the block and then put it up. She said Harry took our son with him and said they would be back by 9 o'clock to listen to the prize fight. The back door was hooked and while the fight was in progress, Clarence knocked and I went and let him in. She said that Oscar Townsend had gone to bed about 9.30 p.m. and that she and Harry had gone to bed about 15 or 20 minutes later. Clarence didn't go to bed when we did, she said, but came in a little while after we were in bed. I heard him come in and go up the stairs and close his door. I didn't remain awake long, I don't think. I never heard Clarence anymore that night after 11 p.m. She told the court that Clarence kept a pistol in the pantry in the built-in cabinet. She had wanted him to put it somewhere where her kids couldn't get to it. Harry had a gun too. I don't know what kind, as I don't know anything about pistols, she said, but I heard him say it was a 38. She said when Harry was arrested and his pistol was taken from underneath their bed, she heard Officer Thompson say that it hadn't been fired. She said Jack Thurman had come to her house before 7 a.m. on Wednesday morning and asked if either Harry or Louise had seen Mamie. Harry left for work shortly after and Jack returned and asked if Clarence had seen her. Then I went to the first landing and called Clarence twice before he answered, she said. Clarence came down several minutes later and went out and talked with Jack before coming back in to eat breakfast and do the breakfast dishes. 
She was able to explain the soiled rags found in the basement as belonging to someone who had cleaned for her and swore that, until the searches were completed by police officers, nothing was moved or done to the basement by her or any other person in her household. The defense presented her with the hat that Mamie had been wearing the night she was killed, making a show of poking his fingers through the two bullet holes, and asked if she'd ever seen it before. She hadn't, she said. On cross-examination, she clarified that Clarence did not stay with them as a member of the family. The way I put it, she said, he did any odd jobs that I had. She was questioned about the end of her friendship with Mamie. Mrs. Thurman and I didn't have any falling out. We just quit going places together. And she testified that her entire knowledge of the affair had been based on nothing more than her women's intuition. I learned that they were intimate with each other because I had cause to believe they were. A woman doesn't have to be told these things. I had an intuition and was not told by anyone. There was too much intimacy between my husband and Mrs. Thurman. I was talking to Mrs. Thurman once and she told me someone had told her that she had better watch her husband Jack. I told her, she said coldly, if your husband is ever untrue to you, you won't have to be told. You'll just know it. She told her story calmly and except for smugly turning up her chin to punctuate that last sentence, her body language was described as inexpressive. Her final remark to the jury was, My husband wasn't out of the house that night, and he was in bed the next morning when I awoke. After she returned to her seat, Harry was recalled to the stand. He had initially told police that he had owned a large hunting knife and that he kept it in his hunting clothes. A large knife had been found near Mamie's body, and Harry had never produced, and may have never even been asked to produce, his own hunting knife. When testifying, he changed his story, saying that, it's not a hunting knife, just an ordinary pocket knife, and it was still in my old trousers the other night when I went hunting. I've never owned an actual hunting knife in my life. When Harry finished, Cy Williams, the pharmacist at Aracoma Drug, testified and presented records showing that he had indeed filled a prescription for Clarence on the 20th of June, confirming his story that he had been ill. Police Chief Meade Smeltzer was called next to testify about the discovery of Mamie's body. On cross-examination, however, he revealed that Clarence had tried to escape after he'd been questioned when they were transporting him to the jail. He ran about 30 feet after getting out of the car. He came back when I commanded him to do so at the point of a gun, Smeltzer said. Then, Oscar Townsend testified that he had had two guns confiscated from his room by police when they searched the Robertsons' home. Both had once belonged to Harry Robertson. However, it was also revealed that they were both 32s and didn't match the murder weapon. Oscar gave additional details about Clarence's comings and goings on the night of the murder. They had accounted for every minute of Clarence's time. At 11 a.m. on the third day of his trial, Clarence Stevenson was called to testify on his own behalf. It was written that, with his short stature, his unusually bulging forehead, and his missing fingers, he looked out of place in a formal courtroom setting. He was without his signature white cap, and the smile that people were used to seeing on his face when they saw him around town was gone. Instead, he looked weary. He was asked about his ethnicity and his age. When asked to say where he lived, he listed a number of places in Logan County. Peach Creek, DeHue, Laredo, Macbeth, Holden. He had lived in Peach Creek the longest, he said, and was still receiving mail there. But of course, he also lived with the Robertsons at the time of his arrest. He said that he had known Harry for more than a decade and had worked for him doing odd jobs and tending his dogs since 1925. Asked about the blood findings, he said, My nose bleeds very easily since being involved in an automobile wreck. He explained how he drove Mamie to meet Harry, secretly and often. He'd pick her up at Fanny Jones's place and take her to the hunting cabin. 
he'd taken her there Saturday before she died. And about two weeks before her death, he'd taken her to Band Mill Hollow to meet Harry. Sometimes, if Jack was already home from work when they came back, she'd ask to be let out of the car a half block from the house so that she wouldn't have to be seen getting out of the car. He talked about being asked to follow Mamie for Harry, to find out where Mamie was going and report back. Another time, Harry sent him to watch the entrance of the Holland Apartments to see if Mamie came out. He said Harry suspected that she was there with another man that night, but Clarence never saw her enter or leave. Clarence testified that he remembered that it was about 8 a.m. on Wednesday morning when Louise called him downstairs to go speak with Jack Thurman. Mr. Thurman asked me if I saw his wife down the street the night before. He said she was missing and he couldn't find her. Jack said he called around 10 o'clock the night before and came home around 12 midnight and was worried to death. He said he didn't know where she was at. I told him I saw her leave the night before. Then, I went to the bank and asked Mr. Robertson what was all the kicking up around here about Mrs. Thurman being missing. I went to see Mr. Robertson again and he said that he understood there was a party at the Middleburg Edition on Tuesday night and, and maybe Mrs. Thurman got drunk and didn't want to come home. He said if Mrs. Thurman saw me, she would hail me and I would probably get her home. So, Clarence drove to Middleburg and looked for her, but he saw no sign of her or a party. After leaving Middleburg, I went to the bank and told Mr. Robertson I hadn't seen her and he said he was wrong. He found out the party had been called off. Then I went to Peach Creek after my mail. About 12.30, Mr. Robertson said for me to see Jack Thurman and tell him he would be glad to do anything we could to help. I went to Mr. Thurman's apartment and he was in bed. After that, Clarence washed the lunch dishes for Louise before driving Harry to the Middleburg Theater to ask the girl in the ticket booth if anyone matching Mamie's description had come to the movies on Tuesday night. Then they drove to several other places around Logan looking for her. Harry had to get back to the bank, but asked Clarence to go back to Jack's apartment and offer assistance. Jack was at a loss as to what else could be done, so Clarence suggested it might be good if they got out for a while. Clarence, Harry, and Jack all got into the Ford together and talked about where Mamie could be. They parked near downtown and the three walked back toward the bank. The three were standing outside the bank discussing where to look next when someone called Mr. Robertson on the bank phone. Mr. Robertson came back to us and said, Well, Jack, I hate to tell you, but your wife has been found. Mr. Thurman asked where his wife was and Mr. Robertson bluntly answered, On Trace Mountain. Murdered. Then Mr. Thurman hit his fist into the wall and said, I've nothing to live for. I want to die. At that point, Clarence said that Harry had tried to remove Jack's gun and holster for his own protection, but Jack resisted. So, Harry whispered to him to keep an eye on Jack and did not let him hurt himself, Clarence said. He said that after Chief Smeltzer took Jack's gun, Jack Thurman walked the railroad tracks. Around 2 p.m., he took Jack to the Harris funeral home. He testified that later, when he was taken to police headquarters, troopers Cobb and Hampton took him in their cruiser, traveling out of their way to take him to Trace Mountain. Two cars were parked ahead of them on the side of the road, and in the distance, he could hear rifle shots. One of the troopers told him that the rifle shots were probably a mob forming and asked if that scared him. He said that if Clarence didn't tell them what he knew, the men waiting on the mountaintop could have him. Clarence told him, I don't know any more than what I've told. When Clarence was finished with his testimony, Harry Robertson was again called back to the stand where he denied the part of Clarence's story about having asked him to follow Mamie and report back to him, but said that he had instead asked Clarence to watch out over her. A few other witnesses were called to confirm having seen Clarence in places he'd claimed to have been, and then, at 9 p.m., the case was given to the jury. Just 50 minutes later, they returned the guilty verdict. The defense immediately asked that the verdict be set aside, and Judge Jackson granted a delay in the sentencing, agreeing to hear arguments the following week. 
However, after hearing arguments, the judge restored the verdict. I was of the opinion that the jury was warranted in returning the verdict they did, Jackson said. I am still of that opinion. There's no middle ground. I feel the court is not warranted in setting a new date for a trial. I'm not guilty, Clarence protested. I have no knowledge of the crime I'm charged with, and I tried to tell the truth. I hope the law won't stop until they find the guilty parties. Judge Jackson said sympathetically, It's a little hard for the court to take the balance of a man's life when he stands up and says he's an innocent man. But even so, Jackson had no choice but to give Clarence the mandatory sentence of life imprisonment. The trial had ended with more questions than answers, causing the case to remain unresolved even though the verdict had been given. The public wanted the case to be solved. They had been given a suspect. They wanted a conviction. But when it came, they were left wondering if maybe the wrong man hadn't taken the blame for the crime. Many who examined the case, including Mamie Thurman's younger brother George Morrison Jr., who grew up to become a prosecuting attorney himself, believed that Clarence Thurman's trial was a charade. Even Judge James Dameron, the state's leading criminal lawyer who was brought in to aid the prosecution in the case against Clarence Stevenson, didn't feel comfortable that the right man was sent to prison. He called the conviction the handiwork of a well-laid conspiracy. Journalist Robert Spence, considered an authority on West Virginia history, wrote about the murder and the conviction in his book The Land of the Guyandot, The History of Logan County. He wrote that the Thurman murder is included in this record because it shows the evil nature of racism and the manner in which injustice is sometimes allowed to stand. There will be no attempt to duplicate the work of those who have written at length about the murder, he said. Yet, it should be noted that the best judgment of this matter is that an African-American citizen named Clarence Stevenson was framed for murder. If that is the case, it is one of the worst injustices in Logan's history. The National Organization for the Advancement of Colored People and the Logan County Colored Civic League began raising funds to help pay the legal fees to prepare an appeal. Fifty-six black churches in the region raised enough money to allow Clarence's conviction to be appealed to the West Virginia Supreme Court. But the Supreme Court simply affirmed the judgment of the lower court, and Clarence's conviction was allowed to stand. Those of you here for the paranormal portion of our podcast will likely be familiar with West Virginia's Moundsville State Penitentiary. The Gothic Stone Fortress is one of the most famously haunted places in the United States. Clarence arrived at Moundsville State Penitentiary on August 22, 1934. He was, by every description, a model prisoner. He was especially compliant with prison officials, hoping that maybe good behavior would someday allow him to be paroled. His charm and friendly nature had won him many friends in Logan, and it wasn't different in prison. He was given special privileges. He was permitted to be outside his cell after lights out to play poker, checkers, and other games with the night shift guards. And he was even allowed to chauffeur the prison warden. Due to overcrowding at Moundsville, though, Clarence was transferred to a new prison, the Huttonsville Correctional Center, in June of 1939. The cells there were larger, but the guards weren't nearly so friendly. Clarence found himself lonely and depressed. In 1941, he went to the prison infirmary with mild upper abdominal discomfort and a loss of appetite. He complained of continual heartburn, and within a few months he was having trouble swallowing. Extreme fatigue confined him to his cell for days at a time, and he lost a great deal of weight. This time, the prison physician ran a variety of tests and gave him a diagnosis of stomach cancer. There were no treatment options available to him, so he spent his last months in pain as the cancer spread throughout his body and eventually claimed his life. 
Clarence Stevenson, died at the prison farm of the Huttonsville Correctional Center on April 24, 1942. He was just 39 years old. Clarence was buried at the prison cemetery on May 2nd. His sister, Josie Carpenter, was the only person to attend his funeral. More than 40 years later, Dwight Williamson, a reporter for the Logan Banner, interviewed one of Clarence's former cellmates, both at the Logan County Jail and later at the Moundsville State Penitentiary. He offered insight into what life was like inside the prison, and also provided an interesting insight into what might have happened the night of Mamie Thurman's murder. Clarence once told me, he said, he was hired to take the body to 22 Holden Mountain, and he hadn't done anything to Mamie Thurman. He never did say he knew who killed her. All he said was that he didn't do it. He said it was all politics. So, if Clarence didn't do it, who did? And who would have hired him to dispose of her body? If you've ever watched Dateline 2020 or any crime drama, you're probably already wondering why Jack Thurman wasn't the prime suspect in Mamie's murder. The sheer brutality of Mamie's injuries suggests a level of passion, a level of pure rage, that would have been hard to associate with anyone who didn't have a deep emotional connection to the victim. It's hard to imagine someone doing that to her, unless they wanted to hurt her the way that she had hurt him. On the surface, at least, Jack acted completely ignorant of his wife's adultery, every bit the mournful husband. But if the activities of the Amor Club, which was located well within Thurman's patrol area, had gone unnoticed, and if he had been unaware of her infidelities, it isn't hard to imagine that finding out about them could have sent him into a jealous rage. After giving his deposition, Jack Thurman was given an approved leave of absence from the Logan police force, and then, accompanied by his brother, Jack left Logan to visit relatives in Louisville, Kentucky. If he was innocent of Mamie's death, it would make sense for him to want to get away from the daily newspaper coverage of the scandalous details that had been running since the day that her body was discovered. Not only was he left to deal with the fact that his wife had been brutally murdered, but that maybe he really hadn't known her at all. It had to be hard to walk down the street with everyone knowing that his wife had been wildly unfaithful while he dutifully patrolled the city streets each night. Jack's departure, while understandable, also seems a little bit convenient. After giving his initial deposition, he had effectively made himself unavailable for further questioning during the duration of the investigation. The police had confiscated his gun when he was given his leave of absence. I'd be curious to find out when they took his service revolver, one that was the same caliber of weapon used in Mamie's death, if any ballistics testing was ever performed on it. If they did test it, it was never announced to the press and the results were never disclosed. If it wasn't tested though, I'm curious as to why. With him having left town and the citizens of Logan demanding that someone answer for the crime, police may have been left with little choice but to pursue the case against Harry Robertson and Clarence Stevenson. And if Jack had been the one responsible for Mamie's murder, I doubt that he'd have been terribly upset that the man who helped play him for a fool wound up taking the fall for it. Jack could have done it. His gun matched the murder weapon, he had opportunity, and if he had discovered her infidelities, he certainly would have had motive. But even given all of that, I don't think he did it. After Clarence's trial and conviction, Jack Thurman left Logan forever to return to Louisville. If we're going to consider that the jealousy of angry spouses could be a motivation in Mamie's murder, we can't leave the list of suspects at just Jack Thurman. I don't know much of Mrs. Robertson's personality, but what we do know is that first, she was a woman who believed that she was being betrayed quite regularly 
by both her husband and a woman that she had once considered a close friend. We also know from Clarence's testimony that he had told Louise Robertson that Mamie was planning on ruining her reputation, her marriage, and her life. Beyond that, her testimony revealed that, though she claimed to not know much about firearms, she still had ready access to both Clarence's gun, which was kept in the pantry, and Harry's, which was kept under their bed. And her testimony that her only response to the suspicions about her husband's infidelity and the information that Clarence had passed along to her that Mamie Thurman had intended to ruin her life was to simply quit speaking to Mamie, to disallow her from being in her home. It seems possible to me that Louise Robertson may have discovered the truth behind her suspicions and that she allowed the jealous rage that had been simmering just beneath her cool exterior to finally bubble over shooting Mamie with one of the weapons in her home. It also seems possible that then, and possibly with Clarence's assistance, Louise drug Mamie's body to the basement. I can envision her struggling with the weight of it, perhaps pulling Mamie down the stairs by her feet, and perhaps even Mamie's neck breaking as her head bounced off the steps on the way down. I can even envision that Louise attempted to dismember Mamie to make it easier to dispose of the body, and that she had sent Clarence to get rid of it because though her testimony gave both Clarence and Harry an alibi and a timeline for where they had both been that evening, her story didn't fit with Harry's. Remember, Harry said that he had left the house to take the children swimming and that he listened to the prize fight at a restaurant downtown. He said that when he came home, their Ford was gone. However, Louise said that Harry had come home and listened to the fight and that she had to get up during the fight to let Clarence in because the door was latched. She also said that she didn't consider Clarence a member of her family, but that he was simply someone who did any odd jobs she had. So could Louise have killed Mamie Thurman? And worse, could she have been the one to call and report the blood-drenched black car downtown, knowing that she had just sent Clarence out with Mamie's corpse, hoping that he would take the blame for her crime? To be honest, I can't completely rule out that possibility. Another theory that was put forward in F. Keith Davis's book was that one of the other men that Mamie was involved with was jealous and during an argument Mamie was either pushed, accidentally or otherwise, down a flight of stairs or fell while trying to leave. The murderer carried her body down to the street where he found Harry Robertson's Ford parked and after maneuvering her body into the passenger seat, he fired two shots into her brain, carefully staging it to make sure that it looked as though she had been shot by the driver. And then, Expecting that Harry Robertson would take the blame for Mamie's death, he left the scene and made the call to the police about the blood-drenched black vehicle downtown. But Clarence disrupted that plan when he discovered the body. Horrified and not knowing what to do, he drove back to the Robertson home. When he found Harry gone, he drug the body to the basement and tried to figure out how best to get rid of it. He had decided that there was little choice but to try to dispose of it, to protect Harry and to protect himself and eventually he took Mamie out to the spot on 22 Mountain Road where she'd later be found. The issue with this theory, to me at least, is that there's very little evidence to support it. It also doesn't fit with Clarence's supposed confession to having been paid to dispose of the body. But the jealous lover was a variation on a theory that, because of the frequency with which it was put forth, may actually carry a kernel of truth. The first version of that story was told in June of 2001 by Edna Jones. 
She recalled hearing her parents and several other adults discussing what happened on the night that Mamie died. The doctor killed Mamie by shoving her down a staircase in the White and Browning building. Then, after her neck was broken in the fall, he slit her neck, draining most of the blood evidence before having the body moved. My parents must have had some type of inside information of the crime. It was a citywide conspiracy, if you ask me. I believe that out of fear of reprisal, they never uttered the doctor's name, at least not to me. All they told me was that he was a well-known area physician, no matter how much I aggravated them. That black man, Clarence, was only guilty of driving the dead body out of town for the real killer. Unfortunately, he just got caught up in the politics of the time. Harry Robertson's brother, who also performed the autopsy on Mamie's corpse, was a well-known area physician who, it just so happens, kept an office at the White and Browning building. In another version reprinted by F. Keith Davis in his book The Secret Life and Brutal Death of Mamie Thurman, a nurse collected a story from one of her patients at the Logan County Nursing Home, in which the elderly woman confessed to having witnessed Mamie Thurman's death. I was invited to a party at Harry Robertson's house. It was June 21, 1932. There were several businessmen, their wives, and singles attending the event inside the Robertson home. We were all enjoying the evening and having a few mixed drinks. Louise Robertson was playing music on the Victrola, and we were all having a nice time. Many of us were standing around talking in a very casual, relaxed setting. I recall there was a beautiful oval wooden table in the dining room with matching chairs. The table was positioned near a large fireplace. Harry and his brother were sitting at the oval table with Mamie. She was drinking heavily that night and was especially outspoken. On several occasions, Harry argued with her and told her to quiet down. Everyone was aware that they were quarreling, and Mamie just continued to get louder. At one point, Mamie blurted out something derogatory about Louise. Harry instantly jumped from his chair as Mamie also began to stand up, he pulled back his hand and slapped her across the mouth with all the strength he could muster. From that blow, Mamie screamed and lost her balance and fell toward the hearth of the fireplace. When her head struck the hardwood with such force, she hit so hard her legs buckled beneath her. She dropped like a rock to the floor with her head just inches from the iron grate. Several women shrieked and everyone in the house stood motionless, in shock. Although Mamie moaned like a wounded animal for a second or two afterwards, the moaning soon stopped and Mamie never moved after that. Dr. Robertson ran to her and checked her pulse and tried to examine her for injuries. Her neck was broken, and by this time, she was already dead. When he told the group, Louise placed both hands over her mouth and stood speechless in the corner of the room. Harry shook and sobbed for several minutes, but soon gained his composure. In a quivering voice, he asked for everyone, including me, to come into the dining room. He and his brother whispered for several minutes, as if coming up with a plan. Harry then asked us to make a promise to never tell anyone what happened. He told us that if we told, we would all be in big trouble since we were all drinking illegal liquor. He said that some people might even claim the episode was murder and everyone would be an accessory to the crime. Careers would be lost, families would be destroyed, and reputations would be ruined. We talked among ourselves for several minutes and finally agreed to keep the happenings of that night quiet for our own sakes. At Harry's request, we left the house quietly and tried to push the incident out of our minds. I don't think anybody talked over the years. I later heard that Harry and his brother carried the dead body down to the basement. Dr. Robertson decided to slice Mamie's throat and rid the body of excess blood so that it wouldn't get all over the car. This would also minimize any blood evidence should the body be discovered. Blood flowed and made a larger than expected pool of red on the basement floor, so much so that Harry soon called Clarence downstairs, who'd been restricted to his attic room during the party, to help clean up the gory mess. 
Later, Clarence was asked to dispose of the body in a secure place where she would never be found. I was told Louise was in the basement and witnessed all of this happening. When they finished cleaning up, the three men hauled the corpse back upstairs and positioned her in the car. As Clarence prepared to leave, he was asked to wash out the inside of the car after he returned. Harry then put a pistol in Clarence's hand and suggested that he shoot Mamie several times, just in case the body was ever found. This, he thought at the time, would forever confuse any type of investigation. Author F. Keith Davis claimed that he also heard that same story, without any significant variations, from two other independent sources. Upon first reading, I was skeptical. It was told so long after the events occurred. The elderly woman may have been misremembering, an aged and possibly senile mind reconstructing a story that she was so familiar with as something that she had experienced firsthand. But according to Davis, it wasn't coming from just one witness. He claimed that three people had told him the same story. And the more I thought about it, the more it struck me that this is the only version of events that really addresses everything. It began to feel like this was the missing piece of the puzzle. That maybe one of the witnesses having a crisis of conscience explains the anonymous, blood-drenched black car call to the police. That it fits with the other town gossip about a doctor whose practice was in the White and Browning building being tied to the crime. That it explains why there were so many injuries that independently would have been fatal. It explains the feeling that this was a citywide cover-up. It also explains why the basement of the Robertsons' home was scrubbed. And it feels like maybe that this is the truth that the investigators were trying to draw out by offering a $1,000 reward. If this was indeed what happened, Mamie's death was accidental. But those at the party, no doubt, many of them influential members of the community, participated in not only covering it up, but in also allowing an innocent man to go to prison for it, rather than simply telling the truth. And the idea that things that look nice on the surface hide a vein of dark and dirty secrets underneath, to me, that just feels like Logan. It was dark and raining. Looking around to be sure he was alone, Clarence Stevenson opened the back door of his boss's Ford and pulled the slender, mutilated body of a woman from the back seat. He wrestled the corpse to the side of the road and then panted and grunted as he pushed the body of a woman he'd once considered a friend into a gully and watched it disappear into a bramble of blackberry thorns. He thought she'd never be seen again, but he was wrong. For more than 85 years, there have continued to be mysterious, unexplainable sightings of Mamie Thurman beside that desolate spot of Mountainside Highway near Holden, West Virginia. Most sightings of Mamie Thurman take place in the summer, but there are also deer hunters who claim to have seen a woman's footprints in the snow along the road, both beginning and ending without a trace as to where they would have come from or where she would have gone. On occasion, good Samaritans unfamiliar with the legend have picked her up and have given a description of a dark-haired woman in a snug blue dress with tiny white polka dots and an old-fashioned turban-style hat. They'll usually describe her as somewhat sorrowful or tormented. But, as with all of these stories, Mamie vanishes before they reach her destination. Raymond Mills told the story of experiences that his uncle, Robert Mills, had while driving transit buses in the Logan area in the 1940s. Buses ran routes all over the country years ago. My uncle Robert told me that he drove the bus route that went by Holden 22 because none of the other drivers wanted that particular route, believing it was haunted, he said. Uncle Robert told me that he picked up Mamie Thurman many times while driving near Holden 22 Mountain. 
According to Robert, he would stop the bus to pick her up and then drive her along his bus route, usually headed toward the Island Creek area. Once he came to her destination, he would stop and turn the interior lights on so she could make her way off the bus. In every circumstance, when he turned on the inside lights, she would be gone, vanished. Raymond said that his uncle wasn't really bothered by the ghost after the first time he'd seen her disappearing act and continued to drive the route and pick her up for many years. Many people familiar with her legend suggest that the ghost of Mamie Thurman still walks the lonely road on 22 Mountain, unable to find rest until those responsible for her murder are finally brought to justice. Unfortunately, after so many years, it's unlikely that anyone who knew the truth of her murder is still alive to tell it. The identity of her killer is just another dark secret buried beneath the West Virginian soil. Much of this episode was taken from the book The Secret Life and Brutal Death of Mamie Thurman, written by F. Keith Davis, with additional information provided by the book Ghost of 22 Mountain, The Story of Mamie Thurman, by Mamie's baby brother, George A. Morrison Jr. If you're interested in knowing more about the story of Mamie Thurman, links to purchase those books and other resources are available at our website, epitaphpod.com. Epitaph is an independent, bi-weekly podcast. If you like what you've heard, Maybe leave us a review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you may be listening. And maybe tell your friends about us. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can find us on the web at epitaphpod.com. You can also find us on Twitter at, at epitaphpod, and by searching for Epitaph Podcast on Facebook. If you've got a few extra dollars, consider joining our Patreon. There you'll get access to Epitaph, the others, our special subscriber-only shows, and we've got a few extra things in the works there, too. This episode was researched, written, edited, recorded, and produced by me. I'm your host, Jason. Thanks for listening.